This episode contains sensitive content that may not be appropriate for listeners of all ages. Listener discretion is advised. From Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Mountainland Physical Therapy's Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Madison Splann. Thanks for listening. Today's topic, constipation and fecal incontinence. We speak with physical therapist, Janet Mishrell. Janet is a graduate from the University of Utah and has practiced physical therapy since 1996. She returned for her doctorate in physical therapy with an emphasis on core strengthening and pelvic health. In 2007, she began her own business, Live Well Physical Therapy, and has worked closely with gastroenterologists and colorectal surgeons since that time. Her resume also includes instructing yoga since 2004 and coaching Nordic skiers in core strength-based exercises since 1997. She currently works with Utah Gastroenterology as well as the Associates in Colon and Rectal Surgery, providing pelvic floor diagnostic testing and practices physical therapy at Mountainland Physical Therapy on Foothill Drive. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me, Madison. Uh, Today, we're just going to delve right into some of our more unspoken afflictions, uh, mainly fecal incontinence and constipation. And yes, we often refer to those as the silent afflictions because these are just so underreported. It's definitely not uncommon for us as practitioners to, when asking a patient how long they've been dealing with fecal incontinence, receive a response of five years, maybe 10 years that they've been dealing with this, but they were absolutely too embarrassed and mortified to report. And uh, Mainly what happens is that it begins to finally interfere with their quality of life to such a degree that they have to seek help. Um, It's an incredibly socially debilitating condition if it's not controlled. It does lead to inability to maintain a job in many cases, and it creates a situation where people are homebound. They can't go and and, uh, they can't go out. Um, And, you know, which is really quite devastating because as we age, part of healthy aging is maintaining a healthy lifestyle that involves leaving your home. (laughs) So, uh, but basically what's happening um, with this population, you know, it's, it's bottom line, it's an involuntary loss of stool or mucus from the anal sphincter with our fecal incontinence. And it's kind of important to differentiate between the two different types. We've got urge fecal incontinence. And that is when you get that sensation that you need to go, but you just can't make it. That can be a weakness condition. It can be a coordination condition. And it typically is um, a result of the external anal sphincter not doing its job. And then we have passive fecal incontinence, which is the passing of stool without knowing it. And that is more of a function or dysfunction, I should say, of the internal anal sphincter, which is the component that provides snug at rest. This is just what keeps us from leaking gas or mucus all the time. And then there's also seepage, um, often refer, you know, we'll often refer to some incontinence as seepage. And um, what that implies is, uh, or what that refers to is usually post-evacuative 
someone's had a bowel movement, but they end up having seepage following. And that is often the result of not having emptied completely. So for people with fecal incontinence, they will tell you that their most challenging time is if their stool is loose or watery. So, so much of the management of this condition does depend on trying to support what they're doing with improving the consistency of the stool. Because a weak or atrophied pelvic or sphincter muscle would not be able to maintain hold against that. And so like other muscles in the body, those muscles do work on a use it or lose it. And uh, is often, especially in women, further compromised by injury during our childbearing years. So during labor and delivery, especially in the presence of the use of forceps or vacuum-assisted delivery, we can um, have a significant episiotomy and further damage that can affect the anal sphincter. And uh, interestingly enough, a lot of women do well with this for a number of years. And then sometimes 20 years down the road, they begin to have problems with fecal incontinence and they're asking, okay, why is this happening now? And mainly, once again, it's that disuse atrophy that begins to affect us as we age. What's kind of interesting is during the last podcast on the labor and delivery special considerations, we were talking about episiotomies, and I know it's quite rare to have a grade four episiotomy in this day and age where for those listeners out there, the grade four episiotomy is where there is significant tearing or cutting through the viscera all the way through the internal anal sphincter from the vaginal canal in order to allow enough movement for a baby to come out. Generally, these days, the only time that happens is when there's a significant danger to mom or baby. So at this point in time, forceps and vacuums are beginning to go and used less frequently. So hopefully moving forward down the road, we should see less of these kind of patient populations in our door because these procedures are being less and less used. Yeah, and the other thing that can also affect the anal sphincter is surgeries, including cancer of the anus or the rectum. Uh, some surgeries to treat fissures, which is actually um, a, a lesion within the anal sphincter that creates a lot of pain during defecation. And sometimes a small surgery just to approximate that tissue to allow for healing is done. But in rare cases, it can just weaken that area around that tissue. And then if there are any abscesses or other things like fistulas, um, hemorrhoidectomies used to be considered a potential cause for this. They're much more careful with hemorrhoidectomies as far as being sure not to catch any of the muscle. So some people that do have hemorrhoidectomies and experience fecal leakage afterwards, sometimes it's thought that that hemorrhoid was actually, in fact, adding kind of a cushioning closure that was helping that person maintain continence. Now that person was obviously right on the edge of being too weak anyway. So 
um, that's that's sometimes what happens in in that case. So the other things that we definitely see a lot of is injury from radiation uh, to the pelvic region. Again, that's in you know older populations more so because they're being far more careful to do their best to try to avoid the areas that, you know, especially for like prostate and whatnot, um, to try to avoid the rectum and the sphincter. Uh, rectal prolapse definitely can lead to incontinence, and um, that's definitely an immediate referral to a colorectal surgeon. And for those listeners, like a rectal prolapse is when you strain tissues from the internal anus is coming out of the rectum. And so if you notice that you're feeling extra sensations when you're bulging or you have to bear down to have a bowel movement and you can see tissue coming out of your rectum, that is a significant dysfunction and you should most definitely seek further medical evaluation. Yeah, and then neurologic diseases. And we'll see uh, a lot of fecal incontinence in Parkinson's uh, with MS, um, type 2 diabetes, and um, our stroke patients as well as dementia. So, um, you know, again, we're looking for many of these people at an aging population as well. So uh, the other things that are important to note that can lead to the fecal incontinence is a presence of a rectocele. And these are very common. A lot of women have rectoceles. And a rectoceles, the most common direction, is an anterior bulge of the rectum into the vaginal wall. So what that feels like is, you know, there seems to be a bulge at my vagina. I don't know what it is. And, and you know, at, at first recognition of that, it can be quite alarming. How women have managed this for years forever <laughs> is um, to either press up on that space between the vagina and the anal sphincter or to splint vaginally, which means they put their thumb in and press the thumb back, pad back. And basically they're splinting or supporting that rectocele. And they are emptying material that can no longer then seep out later. So again, there's your seepage, trying to control that for seepage. A lot of women will uh, actually try to empty the rectocele as well before intercourse, just to make sure that's clear. Having a rectocele is not always uh, a surgical, require surgery. So yeah, I would agree. Uh, I think those patients, they have options from conservative to physical therapy to pessary options all the way to surgical reconstruction. And I think some individuals that are definitely at risk for rectocele are those ladies that are laboring and are in the active stage of labor. So that's the pushing stage of labor. Two hours or longer have been shown to be at more risk for having a pelvic organ prolapse, whether that's rectocele, cystocele, or uterine. So those are kind of individuals that we may be seeing more often with rectocele compared to individuals that have a nice one and a half hour active stage of labor, which is ideal, of course. <laughs> and also with, with any of these conditions, uh, if the stool is loose or watery, things are going to be much worse. So one of our 
our, our first interventions for you know helping people with fecal incontinence is supporting the recommendations that their dietitian or their gastroenterologist has rec has provided for a fiber that's appropriate for very loose stool the fibers that are in that psyllium family such as metamucil are more widely prescribed because they definitely have a stronger bonding characteristic to them and create that gel that allows for first of all allows for people to hold better it allows for better rectal sensation and it also allows for more complete elimination so nothing can seep out later so some of the other uh, fibers in the presence of fecal incontinence may create further looseness is, and is they're, they're not always what that patient needs and then sometimes people um, find that uh, the probiotics that they're taking seem to help reduce looser watery stool that depends on what their condition is. So one of the more common um, medications that is sometimes prescribed to these patients is cholesteramine. The original name for that was Wellcall. But uh, I have a lot of patients right now that, that are being prescribed that by their physicians and, and doing quite well with that. And then the last thing that's really important, a lot of times we will get referrals for somebody that has fecal incontinence. And as we go through hearing about just how their, their, their behavior is, I don't go for three days and then I just have a day where I'm homebound because I can't hold it. It's just watery diarrhea. That person's actually constipated and what they're experiencing is that overflow diarrhea. And so we hear of people scheduling their week, knowing that they're going to have two to three days of when they can leave their home and then they can't do anything for the next day or so. So it's, it's really um, quite debilitating as far as trying to, you know, keep a quality of life going there. So yeah, these individuals, I definitely will prescribe a bowel diary. Um, and for those listeners, a bowel diary, the patient comes in and they're given a chart and the chart is going to talk about what kind of food and fluids are they putting in um, when are they having a bowel movement? What is the consistency of the bowel movement based on the Bristol stool chart? Um, for the listeners out there, if you just Google that, you'll see exactly what I mean. It shows pictures, descriptions of the stool consistency with that. And then um, if they had leakage, what were they doing when the leakage occurred? And what was the consistency and quality of that leakage when it occurred? And based on the research, um, by or at all, they showed that the research um, should be seven days of the bladder diary uh, and bowel diary. And so I know from a, um, a clinical standpoint, I'm generally only doing two or three days um, because I feel seven days is really hard for compliance purposes. I don't know. What do you see out there, Janet? Uh we actually have them do seven days. That's and great. a lot of that is, for, for one, 
and, and this is jumping the gun a little bit, talking about constipation, but you really um, begin to recognize certain trends over a period of time. But if, if your patient can be compliant with keeping the stool diary, and a lot of times by this point, they are um, pretty compliant because you know, their, their, their quality of life is so affected. Um, but it, it also creates actual compliance. That's what they're doing for fiber, for managing the stool and all those things because they're writing it down. Um, the other reason that uh, people will be asked to do a stool diary for an extended amount of time is in the event that following physical therapy, their condition doesn't improve, the damage is either too, too excessive, the... Um, the weakness is just too profound, that in that case, then they may be a candidate for what's called sacral nerve stimulation. And sacral nerve stimulation is like a little pacemaker that's implanted into the gluteal muscles. They will actually do about a two-week trial to make sure it's appropriate, that it's actually going to be effective. And then they will use the implant. And what the implant does. This is something that's, that's a little confusing, so I always like to explain this. Uh, people think if it's a nerve stimulation that it's going to create an input that's just going to squeeze the sphincter shut tight, and that's actually not how it works. So our ability to remain continent, it's a complex system of a number of different things going on, rectal distension, rectal sensation, the reflexes at the anal sphincter. Uh, this is controlled in, uh, by the autonomic nervous system, as well as our volitional control of the muscles of the pelvic floor. And because of that complexity, um, basically what we're seeing with the sacral nerve, nerve system, it is able to access all these different aspects of this, this complex process. And it, fancy word, neuromodulates, it changes how all of that is working together. So the sacral nerve stimulation um, can be extremely effective. It's not 100% effective, but for many people, it, it has provided a huge amount of relief from this condition. And I think a lot of the research that I've been reading about those is really bringing them into the spinal cord injury and stroke and traumatic brain injury populations where it not only is helping quality of life for those individuals, but also decreasing the burden on caregivers and reducing the chance of, of open sores from, from being in soiled clothing or undergarments for a longer period of time. It seems to be really effective in that standpoint. So I look forward to seeing how it's utilized in the future and hopefully that will continually improve quality of life for these individuals as well as decreasing caregiver burden and burnout because of those different situations. Yeah, and that's really important, Madison, because fecal incontinence is uh, one of the main reasons for people heading off to nursing homes, assisted living facilities. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's a huge burden on caregivers. It's a huge economic burden as well. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and just to, you know, talk about red flags really, you know, quickly, of course, you know, any kind of uh, rectal bleeding, you know, change in bowel habits. And, and a lot of times they're actually looking for change in bowel habits um, greater than three months. Um, 
and uh, unexplained weight loss is always uh, a red flag. Family history of colon or rectal cancer, along with that change in bowel habits, is a big red flag. And that's when you want to get in to see your colorectal specialist or gastroenterologist. I think a couple other ones that I found was a like a very quick onset of saddle anesthesia. So that's if you were mm-hmm. going to sit on a bicycle and that tissue becomes numb and that's a sudden onset and that is coincided with fecal incontinence, that's a significant red flag, as well as a correlation between lower extremity weakness. So if all of a sudden you have saddle numbness with, if you're going to sit on a, on a bicycle seat or you're, you are going to sit on a horseback saddle, if that tissue that's in contact with that were to turn numb, and then you also have a significant weakness in an area that we call a dermatome, which is a specific area of the body or myotome, excuse me, that is innervated by a specific nerve if that has it's a very specific pattern that can be assessed by colorectal physical therapy neurology and those tend to happen all at once there's something going on that is a red flag that you should seek further medical advice let's talk a little bit about some of the different tests that our patients might undergo and uh, one of the tests that they may undergo is uh, anal rectal manometry. It's also called a balloon test. And what that is assessing is pressures of the anal sphincter, the anal canal, and the um, which is also referred to as the anal canal, and also the rectum. And it's uh, very valuable in this case for assessing rectal sensation. Um, and rectal sensation is important to us because obviously if our patients can't feel something's there, they're going to have a problem. Or if they have absolutely no compliance with hypersensitivity, they're also going to have a problem. And this is part of the value of doing an anal rectal manometry. It begins to guide how to retrain that. And that's something that physical therapists will do with rectal balloon training. And it's a form of biofeedback, basically. Anytime we are giving you a treatment and allowing you to see, okay, this is you know, how much air you're putting into that balloon, we are trying to establish that connection. And so that can be helpful um, to assess and then know is balloon training indicated or not. Um, I, I don't see defecograms as frequently for fecal incontinence um, as I, I do for uh, constipation, but some doctors may order a defecogram. Um, Can you describe to the listeners what a defecogram is? A defecogram is a lot of fun. Nobody (laughs) wants to be there for the defecogram. (laughs) Nobody wants to be there for any of this. But um, a defecogram, uh, there are two kinds. There's an MRI defecogram in which a contrast is placed into the rectum. And um, that person is placed into an MRI machine. And then um, the rectum, its contents are visualized during a squeeze relaxation, and bearing down. The other one is a little more uh, functionally realistic in that it's done seated on a commode, and it involves a barium enema, placed into the rectum, obviously, um, barium 
or excuse me, a contrast placed vaginally, and also ingesting. And the defecogram in this case will show during squeeze, is there adequate lift of the pelvic floor? They also look at what's called the anorectal angle. And that's something that your physical therapist will show you and describe to you during your, your treatments as they're educating you about the function of the pelvic floor. Um, but importantly, it also shows what happens during strain. And this is vital because of potential descent of the small intestine upon the rectum, and that's called an enterocele. An enterocele is a descent of the small intestine down into the pelvic cavity. And sometimes people who have a history of a hysterectomy might experience an enterocele because following a hysterectomy, our body does not allow empty space to just harbor within that pelvic cavity. So something is going to take that place of where that uterus was. And most commonly, it's the small intestine, which under normal circumstances is not a problem unless it begins to descend lower, prolapse lower, in which case it can begin to occlude the rectum. So that can be one of the causes of constipation and one of the things that they're looking for in a defecogram. A couple other things are, um, are seeing if, in fact, the rectum kind of telescopes in on itself. And sometimes that's consistent with a history of what we call split defecation. People complain of, I just get a little bit out at a time and I keep having to go back. It's just a little bit at a time or it starts to come out and then it just stops. So we're looking for those things. A defecogram also uh, assesses for a rectocele. So that's what a defecogram does in the setting. We typically, again, you know, order those more for uh, constipation. So going back to what PTs do for evaluation and treatment, we have therapeutic exercise that addresses strength of pelvic floor and anal sphincter. And if I remember, you were going through a lot of the similar exercises, Madison, and descriptions in your uh, podcast um, for treatment of prolapse. And the same principles for physiologic strengthening of the pelvic floor apply to the anal sphincter. And um, we use biofeedback frequently, surface EMG, or an uh, EMG is uh, uh, you're okay. Uh, I go. I can do that. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. So, <laughs> right. from physical therapy standpoint, with the biofeedback, we have two different options. We have an internal probe for the anal sphincter that's actually going to measure the pressure, and then we also have surface EMG, which are little tiny sensors about the size of your thumbnail that go on either side of your external anal sphincter. And either of these, either the probe or the surface EMG will hook up to a monitor. And on this monitor, it's going to provide a micro voltage that those muscles are producing that have um, somewhat of a correlation between how much strength you're producing with that pelvic floor squeeze or that anal squeeze. And we do this in different positions. So if individuals are having more issues with um, 
the fecal incontinence? Is it when you're walking to the bathroom? Is it when you're transferring from sit to stand? Is it when you're coughing or straining? And so whatever the patient's dysfunction is, that's the activity that we are practicing. So we'll put on those sensors, we'll have the patient squeeze their pelvic floor and move from sit to stand and see are they able to functionally maintain that contraction during that movement. Um, can you walk and maintain that? And so it's a really nice visual cue for patients and the internal probe can also be a really good tactile cue for patients as well because their sphincter is squeezing around that probe that is internal. And so most of the time from, from my standpoint clinically, I'll start with the surface EMG. Um, a, it's more cost effective for the patient and it provides really good information. However, if they are not progressing as well as I think that they should be given their circumstances, then I will progress to the internal probe. Um, it's a little bit more invasive, it's not as comfortable, and it's, more, it's a little bit more costly in nature, but definitely provides a more thorough explanation of what is happening within that internal anal sphincter as well. And one thing about the internal probe is that it does allow, many systems do allow for rental of equipment that a patient can then use at home to combine with their exercise program. And that can be very helpful to them, for them to see what those muscles are doing on a regular basis. Some of the internal sensors are also uh, conducive to pelvic electrical units. And we will use those when we really need to try to get those muscle fibers, those nerve endings firing at the anal sphincter and really stimulate some closure. And I think, and I think the importance with that one is I think a lot of people think, you know, you see those infomercials out for like those core strengthening machines where you just sit there and they're contracting the muscles. And I think a good aside to take right now is the pelvic stimulator is really awesome in that it helps to fire up those muscles. But the key with the application of this is the individual needs to actively be contracting the sphincter as well. Because when it comes to the pelvic floor muscles, we have fast twitch and we have slow twitch muscles. And the research shows us that any neuromuscular electrical stimulation is generally going to be firing more of those fast twitch muscles rather than the slow twitch muscles. So we need to be volitionally, consciously engaging those pelvic floor muscles with the pelvic stimulator. We can't just be passive um, individuals with the pelvic stimulator. The bowel retraining is also very helpful and allows people to at least begin to gain some management of the timing so that they are more confident about leaving their home. So um, again, that all comes with, you know, using the stool diary. Um, beginning to really track when they're trying to get their body to move if possible. Do you do other things for bowel retraining? Um, I would say bowel retraining. I think you've covered most of it. I would say the only other thing that I'll look at with bowel retraining is um, 
talking to them about when it comes to a squeeze, we have different levels of pelvic floor squeeze. We can squeeze at our 10 out of 10, and we can just squeeze a little bit. And so I think teaching patients that there is a range in their ability to contract their sphincter and to walk to the bathroom is probably not obtainable to hold your 10 out of 10. And so teaching them that you can walk and hold your pelvic floor at a 5 out of 10, and that should be enough to still maintain continence to get to the bathroom. So I think a lot of people, it's all or nothing. And so really teaching them that that's not the, the reality, as well as coordinating proper breathing techniques and body mechanics and, and teaching them to not strain, to not hold their breath when they're doing their pelvic floor squeeze, to try and coordinate that with an exhale, because the respiratory diaphragm and the pelvic diaphragm play together. And so when we take a deep breath or we're holding our breath, our pelvic floor is going to naturally be bearing down because our abdominal contents have to go somewhere if that diaphragm is descending down. And so really teaching the proper mechanics of not straining with lifting, with transferring is really important as well. You know, and that just brings up such an important point in that uh, a number of people will say, well, I've tried Kegels and they just didn't work. And the research does show that uh, about 35% of people who are given verbal instruction on how to do Kegels don't do them correctly. And uh, as you're mentioning here, there is a lot more to engage in those muscles correctly than, than I think uh, many, many of us realize. I've also found people, especially with like a rectocele going on, some of them actually are straining and they feel like they're doing a Kegel because they get tissue approximation. And that's because with the straining, that rectal seal is now bulging into the vaginal canal. And so they feel a closing off, but the closing off is not happening because of a pelvic floor squeeze. It's actually happening because of a pelvic floor push. And then they're worsening their symptoms. They think they're doing Kegels and really they're pushing. And so I think the key is having patients come in and really seeing what's happening with the Kegel. And once that awareness is made that they haven't been doing it right and they begin to train properly, the strength can come quite quickly in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree. So let's move on to the constipation because we see so much of this now. I don't know if it's increasing these days or we're just seeing more of it because we're, you know, we're, we're, we're better able to treat it overall. But um, it's, well, yeah, well, it's interesting as I saw a study with the prevalence on there and the prevalence looked like it varied between like one and 20% of the population 16 being like the general population with upwards of 20% our elderly population and even 3% in our, in our children. And so it's definitely affecting all age groups in our population. Right. Right. And, uh, and, and it's a very distressful condition. You know, some people are moderately bothered with it and they're, they kind of manage it, but there are a lot of others that have just significant levels of anxiety related to the constipation. And uh, sometimes that's because there's abdominal pain that comes with that. Um, often bloating can be um, very prevalent and I mean, just excessive from morning to night. And um, there are other interventions because of the anxiety associated with this that 
we need to address as physical therapists. So, um, but it, first of all, it's helpful just to understand the different kinds of constipation. We can have slow transit constipation, and that's where the colon just moves really slowly. And then outlet dysfunction constipation, that's more of that inability of the um, rectum to empty. A lot of people have a hybrid and they have they, they get both. So regardless, these conditions do result in about 8 million doctor visits a year. It's just astounding to think about the economic impact of that. So just to go in about um, some of the causes um, of constipation, if we're looking at the inability for material to move through the digestive tract, um, just starting up a little higher. Sometimes, you know, people may experience a bowel obstruction, and this is more common in people who have had abdominal surgeries. That scar tissue can definitely uh, cause some problems with bowel obstruction. Colon cancer can create an obstruction. Uh, there's narrowing of the colon that can um, that can occur. We call it a bowel stricture, and uh, sometimes that's from chronic inflammation. It could be from Crohn's disease or um, ulcerative colitis. Uh, for people who've had abdominal surgeries involving resection of part of the colon, where they reconnect is an area that scars. And that can create a little bit of narrowing. So, you know, hopefully things are, are, are passing through those strictures just fine. Rectal cancer can create, you know, a, a mass and create constipation. And then the other thing that can happen is pain in that area. So, Anal fissures are not uncommon. I mentioned those before. That's a little lesion in the anal sphincter that people describe it as, it feels like I'm pooping a razor blade every time I go to the bathroom. And so it's very painful. So our body has this muscle guarding mechanism that when there's pain, those muscles will tighten up. And those people have very, a very difficult time emptying because the muscles will no longer relax and open at the pelvic floor and anal sphincter. And then again, that rectocele. We talked about a rectocele contributing to fecal incontinence, but it can also contribute to constipation if matter gets caught in there and then material, fecal material just builds up behind that. And the more stuff sits there, the more moisture is drawn out of it. And those people may end up having to pass a very large and hard stool. And uh, that can also be pretty painful. So most of the workup for constipation, we already talked about a couple of these things before, um, but you know, definitely a colonoscopy is indicated and, and then uh, your doctor may, may want some other imaging um, if there are other abdominal symptoms, um, depending on the condition, CT scan, MRI, or ultrasound. The anal rectal manometry, as mentioned before, does a very good job in this case, not just work looking at your rectal sensation, but also looking to see when 
you're straining down. Are those muscles appropriately relaxing? Is the rectal rectum able to generate a good push? And then again, that sensation and that compliance. So on the flip side of rectal sensation, if people don't know that's there, not only can they inadvertently lose stool because they don't know how to hold, if fecal incontinence is their problem, but if they don't know something's there, they're not getting the urge to defecate, which means that material can just back up. And for those listeners out there, for a normal bowel function, when we strain, our pelvic floor muscles should relax. When we strain or we bulge, that's how our pelvic floor muscles stretch. And so um, that's why the anal rectal manometry is so good because when you strain, when you think you're straining, sometimes patients are actually squeezing. And that's when we get some dyspnea going on, some coordination issues. And so I really find that anal rectal manometry to be very important to see what's actually happening. And some people just don't know. And, and so it, it, it's, a, it's great to um, combine that with your balloon expulsion tests and, you know, as we're trying to train patients to relax appropriately during strain. And it is easy. These are muscles we can't see. It's very easy to get in your mind somewhat of a toothpaste model. I have to use these muscles to push stuff out. And I think that's where uh, that it's called dysinertia. And uh, one of the forms of dysinertia, there's several forms, but one of the types of dysinertia involve an inappropriate tightening of the anal sphincter during strain. So leaving behind the toothpaste model, again, as pelvic physical therapists teach great techniques for doing gentle bearing down. And I like to cue my patients to actually start up by the sternum. Start there and just think about that gentle bearing down going down through the abdominal cavity and then reaching this hammock or this muscle sling and allowing that hammock or muscle sling, which is the pelvic floor, to just balloon downward. It should be completely passive during that effort. So um, we do some training during some of the testing if it's, if it's timely. Other tests that your physician may recommend to work up constipation is um, a colon transit time study, also called a SITS marker test. And that's when you ingest a little, uh, you ingest a capsule with some markers in it, and they will do x-rays, sometimes at one, three, five days, some just do five day. And they're looking to see how many of those markers are remaining in the large intestine. If you're so inclined, you can also test yourself by just eating corn without masticating and see how long that takes. And uh, normal is roughly about 30 to 40 hours. And just for patients to kind of understand, these different markers are like have barium in it. So when you do an x-ray, it'll look really, really bright throughout the colon. Um, And it's showing that at least 80% of the markers should be passed spontaneously by the fifth day, and all of the markers should be expelled by the seventh day if we are having normal colonic movement within the large intestine. So PT evaluation and treatments are going to include coordination techniques for appropriate squeeze, appropriate bearing down, uh, possible treatment of 
abdominal symptoms, since abdominal symptoms can be present with constipation and with abdominal pain. Abdominal massage has been shown to help. Um, there are some other techniques called abdominal visceral release that some therapists will use to try to change the pain symptoms coming from the abdominal area. And, um, and then when you were in Washington, D.C., you had come across a study about some TENS units. Yeah, so it's really cool to see what's going on. It shows that um, using IFC along the abdomen um, can really help improve that colonic motion going on within the large intestines. Because the large intestines, for those listeners, is superficial in the grand scheme of the abdominal contents. And so interferential current is a type of current where we have four different electrodes or sensors that go on the abdominal tissues, and then they are cross currents. And so they're diving deep and going um, across to each other. And that has found to actually improve the peristalsis within the abdomen to reduce constipation and improve that colonic transfer time. So the other things that we definitely emphasize, emphasize in, in physical therapy when it comes to the gut system, and I'm kind of moving, you know, a little bit into constipation that has an abdominal pain component, um, is we call this down training of the sympathetic nervous system. So the sympathetic nervous system is part of our autonomic nervous system. It is the fight or flight component of the autonomic nervous system. When our sympathetic nervous system is upregulated, our body is not wasting energy on digesting. So for some people who have a high stress uh, situation or if they're feeling anxious about the fact that they're constipated and they have abdominal pain, their sympathetic nervous system appears to be upregulated. So we actually will incorporate a lot of techniques that are designed to lower the sympathetic nervous system, but actually increase the parasympathetic, parasympathetic nervous system, which is the sympathetic nervous system's antagonist. Parasympathetic allows us to digest. It allows the system to calm down. It allows that digestive system to work so much more effectively. So um, that actually is... Uh, something that, that makes significant improvements, I think, in my patients that have the abdominal pain. Definitely. I like doing the deep breathing techniques, the diaphragm breathing techniques, thinking belly big, telling them what happens when you take the deep breath, what's happening at the pelvic floor when that happens. I think another big thing to talk about is the proper positioning on the toilet. I think a lot of individuals think that they need to push down and they need to really strain hard, but really the upright posture is going to be the best positioning for proper bowel movements. And if you feel like that's not quite enough. The best next option is to get what's called a squatty potty. And you can just Amazon that right up. And what it does is it just elevates your knees ever so slightly above your hips. And what that does, it helps to slightly improve the abdominal pressure. It also helps to relax what's called the sling ligament, which is one of those um, ligaments that really creates that um, angle that you spoke on earlier. And that helps to relax and allow 
complete evacuation. And so a lot of these patients, I'm getting the biofeedback on in the seated position in the clinic. We're seeing what happens when they're in a similar position to their toilet and what happens when we get their knees elevated above their hips. Does that really help the patient? If we see a good correlation like that in the clinic, I will educate them that it's a really cheap option to help ease of bowel movements, to decrease the need of straining, and to allow proper, really, body mechanics when we're on the toilet. I think we're not really taught the right positioning. And, you know, I think for the elderly population, we use those seat risers because of the difficulty with transfers. And then that's really going to affect our bowel functioning. So it I think it's really important for those patients that have seat risers. You really should get a squatty potty and a squatty potty might not even be high enough for you, depending on how high your seat riser is. So really just kind of look at that and the step stool just might be the best option for you. And it is quite an easy fix that you could even try before going into a provider. Another option too, that's a really easy thing that you can look into is how much water are you drinking? If, if you're constipated, that's because uh, one component can be because we're not drinking enough water. Um, fluid intake should be about 1,500 to 2,000 milliliters per day. So if you break that down into um, U.S. metrics, <laughs> that's about 50, at least 50 ounces a day. An average water bottle is about 16 ounces. So if you're not drinking about four water bottles a day, you are more than likely not having enough fluid intake and just increasing your fluid, you could be amazed by how much that can change. And when I say fluid, generally I'm meaning water, water-based, you know, any of those diuretics, caffeine, alcohol, those are, those are more of a dehydrator. So I'll usually tell my patients, if you're drinking that, you should supplement it with an additional glass of water to combat that diuretic effect that's happening because of that caffeinated beverage or alcoholic beverage. And so that is just like a really easy thing that you can look at. And I know that's one thing that I look at heavily with those bowel and bladder diaries is what are we putting in? And if we're not putting in enough, it makes sense that our output's gonna be really stiff and firm in consistency and cause that constipation. So the other thing that we do in PT is, you know, we support the recommendations made by your dietitian, your gastroenterologist, your uh, colorectal specialist that may include certain types of fiber. Um, with constipation, Metamucil is in a family that psyllium is in that family of fibers that actually can create a little too much bulk. And if you take a psyllium-based fiber, such as Metamucil, without hydrating, and if you have somewhat slow transit constipation, it's going to make things probably worse. So other fibers, you know, we all love real food fibers just because, gosh, you know, it's so great to just get this wonderful nutrient density. And especially this time of year, we're getting into some good fruit and vegetable seasons. But um, uh, those those are important to track as well. And finding the fiber that suits your body because our gut biomes are very different. Some work better than others. Um, and uh, your gastroenterologist uh, or dietitian may also recommend Miralax or magnesium oxide. And what these do is they keep fluid from being drawn out of what's now waste product by the time it's going through the large intestine. And um, it interferes with the fluid being drawn out and allows for 
um, the, the stool to stay softer. And again, keeping a stool diary to track what's working and what isn't is really important. You'll pr probably note, you know, if you start to get on a pattern where things are beginning to regulate daily, that um, you can begin to look back at the day before and, and, and begin to figure out, wow, what did I do right the day before? What did I do wrong? A lot of times our evacuation habits are, um, not habits, but our evacuation production is based on what we did the day before. So it is helpful to start just a couple other little tricks that um, are, are, are old standbys. In the morning when you wake up, if you drink something hot, it will stimulate peristalsis. If you start moving, exercising, that also will help to stimulate. So ideally, then you know you can maybe even stimulate having a bowel movement in the morning. Use your squatty potty, combine that with breathing. If you do have a rectus seal and you've gone through those techniques on how to splint, then add in the uh, rectus seal splinting technique. And you know a lot of times that allows people to clear pretty comfortably and they can begin to go on with their day. I think one thing with that is really listening to your body. If you have constipation, you should not ignore the urge to have a bowel movement. Um, I know it can be difficult in public places to listen to that urge and use a public restroom, but I think in the grand scheme of your overall health, it's okay to use those public spaces to have a bowel movement and listen to your body and listen to those urges because sometimes if you ignore it, it may not come back for a few days. And so you really want to take advantage of when that happens and understanding that you may have a triggering meal for more individuals. It's the morning breakfast and whatever that triggering meal is for you, a bowel movement can occur between five and 40 minutes of that triggering meal. And so being mindful of that, which is where that bowel diary comes in, being mindful of when that, what triggering meal is for you and making that time commitment and knowing that that's more than likely when you're going to have a bowel movement can be really, really important. All right. Well, I think we have definitely dived deep into the different discussions on the fecal incontinence and constipation. And I'm sure moving forward down the line, I'm, I'm sure I'll dive deep into some more theories behind these. Um, but for now, I, I wanna ask Janet, is there anything that you think listeners should really take away from this discussion? If there is just one thing that you hope listeners take away, what would it be? Well, of course, I'm a bit biased, but I think most of our listeners uh, have a tremendous amount to learn from pelvic floor physical therapists, and uh, we really have a lot to offer on how people can begin to help themselves. So, sorry, had to, had to put the plug in for that because, you know, the education component of what we provide, I think, is just so vital. Yeah, I, I'm biased with you as well, and I agree, and I think just understand that it is a multidisciplinary approach and that the communication between providers is really, really important, and so trusting your provider, discussing everything that's going on, even if you don't think it's important, any little detail may just be that hidden key that we need to unlock the true underlying deficits that are going on and causing these dysfunctions. And uh, another important takeaway from all of this is don't wait to seek help because there is help out there 
for these conditions. And if they're really beginning to interfere with your quality of life, the longer you wait, it's clear it's not going to get better on its own. Then yes, there are a lot of people out there that would love to help you. Awesome. Well, thank you for listening. If you'd like to speak with a specialist, please email podcast at mlrehab.com. I would like to thank Janet for coming on the show today. And Janet, um, if listeners would like more information or would like to get into contact with you, what is the best way to do so? They can uh, leave a message and contact our Mountainland Physical Therapy Clinic at Foothill location in Salt Lake City. Great. Well, thank you again for listening and please tune in next month for a topic on pelvic floor considerations with the transgender population. Thank you. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Exercises that are safe and appropriate for some people may not be for you. No treatment program should be undertaken without first consulting your physical therapist or physician. The contents of this podcast is protected under United States copyright laws and may not be reproduced, redistributed, transmitted, displayed, published, or broadcast without prior written permission of Mountainland Physical Therapy.